Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Good morning, Mercy Commons, um, and anyone else that has logged on and happens to be following along with us. We are in week two of our series called Reboot, where we want to unclutter and refresh. And these last two messages have really been quite focused on us as a community as Mercy Commons. And so if you're a visitor, make sure to check in with us next week as we start our new series on Colossians. My daughter, Erin, my youngest, uh, this week had a bit of a problem. Um, She deleted the contacts of her phone. Why, you may ask, did she do that? Because she was running out of space, and so she thought the best way to get her device to work properly was to get rid of some unwanted apps. The problem is she didn't get rid of TikTok or Instagram or she didn't get rid of her videos or her photos or any of the zillions of games that she has on that phone. She got rid of her contacts, which now renders the device pretty useless. Problem is a lot of us are like that. A lot of us try and uninstall apps on our kind of internal spiritual devices that are core to the operating system. Some apps, in fact, on our devices, you aren't allowed to, ins- uh, to uninstall. So if you have an Apple product and you push that app and try and get rid of it, and he just shakes there, the best you can do is try and hide that, right? Well, it's good. It's good that our devices actually help us understand, no, you can't get rid of this device, otherwise it won't work pro- properly. The church is not an app. The church is the operating system for our lives. The church is what gives us the ability to engage with God and with our community and with our city. And so we're going to be looking at specifically what this looks like this morning. In um, March, on March 17th, right about the beginning of the whole uh, quarantine time, uh, I was in a time of prayer and God spoke to me out of the book of Judges, specifically the story of Gideon. And um, I've been praying and wrestling with this text and really believe that God wants to speak to us, Mercy Commons, and perhaps the church at large in terms of what we can learn from the story of Gideon during this time. To give a brief recap of the story of Gideon, this is in a time of the judges. And those of you that were with us during Ruth will remember that the time of judges was marked by Israel doing whatever they wanted to do, whatever was right in their own eyes. And God would raise up military champions to restore Israel back to God's chosen blessed people. And now we find ourselves in a time where the Israelites are completely surrounded um, and in subjugation to the Midianites. In fact, they're hiding in caves. And we pick up the story from Judges 6 verses 12 in, I'm reading from the ESV. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, this is Gideon, and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have, and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian. I am sending you. He said to him, Please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Look, my family is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's family. But I will be with you, the Lord said to him. You will strike Midian down as if it were one man. 
This is a time where Gideon was despondent, saddened, full of fear and anxiety, literally hiding from the Midianites so that they couldn't see him trying to get wheat. In times like this and during the, um, the quarantine and the pandemic, we may feel as part of God's church that we are the same. But God, how are you going to use us? We are the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the youngest in my family. I look around and I see just maybe a handful of people that are wanting to make a difference and are wanting to remain focused on what ultimately is important, wanting to serve our city during this time, but it just seems overwhelming. Yet God says to Midian the same thing that he says to us, I will be with you. God initiates contact with Gideon and starts with an encouragement and says, I am with you. And then an identity statement, you mighty man of valor. The church is the buttress of truth. The church is his body, his family, his field, his temple, so many metaphors. And the most beautiful and compelling one is that the church, we are his bride and he is our beloved groom. He is coming back for us. We are the beloved of God and he is with us. And it is through us that the manifold wisdom of God will be made known, not only to principalities and powers, but to and through this world. And when we look around right now, we look and we see how can that be? Because I am the smallest in the tribe and the weakest of my family. During this time of reboot, some of the things that we can look at in order to be able to engage with this call that God has given us is we're going to look at three main things. What it means to delete some of the idle apps on the devices of our souls. What it means to recognize the sifting of God and looking at some of the methods that will have to change as we move forward. Let's look at what deleting some of the idle apps means. Well, when, when God speaks to Gideon, the first thing that he tells Gideon to do is to get rid of the idols of his father. And we pick this up in Judges 6 verses 25 to 27. On that very night, the Lord said to him, take your father's young bull and a second bull, seven years old, then tear down the altar of Baal that belongs to your father and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Build a well-constructed altar to the Lord your God on top of this mound. Take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. So Gideon took ten of his male servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his father's family and the men of the city, he did that at night. Let me say this, feeble faith is better than no faith at all. Gideon responded to God and did it in the middle of the night so that people wouldn't be able to see him, but he did it. And one of the things that I really believe prophetically that God is calling us to destroy is the altars of our father. Gideon destroyed altars that his fathers had built. Uh, these were altars that were the cultural gods of that time. I feel like at, in, in our age, Christendom has become that altar that needs to be torn down. These are, these are monuments that stand to the culture around us that show us that we are complicit with the world. God's command to Israel had been that when you enter the promised lands, you are to tear down all the altars to other gods. And yet here we find that Gideon's family has actually set up altars. They've built new ones. Israel had a history of what I call replacement idolatry. Uh, the golden calf that they um, fashioned together when God was taking them out of Egypt wasn't a completely new God, but they fashioned this golden calf and they said to each other, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. 
It wasn't so much a different God that they were worshiping, but they were worshiping God in the way in which they wanted to worship God. They were worshiping Yahweh in a way that was consistent and fit in with the rest of the community around them. They had these balls and Asher poles that were erected um, in opposition to God, but out of a desire to fit in to the surrounding social structure. Israelites would say, well, I can still be part of Israel and I can still be part of God's called out community. And yet I can sacrifice my child at a pole at, at an Asherah pole. It sounds ridiculous. Yet our sacrifices these days are a little more sophisticated, a little less brutal, less, less brutal, nonetheless equally disturbing. Our role as a church is to equip followers of Jesus to live in a way that is consistent with Jesus's teaching, not just in terms of how to treat fellow man, but on what holiness and set apartness looks like. At Mercy Commons, we talk about displaying the mercies of God, and that means that this is about how we live in the world, but are not of the world. How we love this world, but are not shaped by this world. The altar that we are called to set up, just like Gideon was told to set up a strong altar, is the purity of the gospel message. The gospel message of creation. God created all things, and all things were good of fall, when sin entered into the world because, God, because man wanted to be their own God, wanted to be in charge of their own lives, wanted full autonomy from God, and sin entered the world in separation from God. Of redemption, as Jesus uh, um, comes in, as a fully God, fully man, to be present with us and show us what the kingdom of God is. Where Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When you look at me and you see the things that I do, you can see that the kingdom of heaven has come an ultimate consummation when Jesus returns for his bride. The idea of being a good person with a certain morality and therefore a certain political code as an identifier of what a Christian is, is not the gospel. Equally, a faith in Jesus that is not difficult or not sacrificial, but is basically life enhancement or Jesus in the suburbs is also not what God has called us to. The gospel is that the grace of God has rescued me from my sin and shame. Personally, I've been rescued. It has changed me from being an enemy of God to his beloved child. But the good news of the kingdom has come in that corporately I'm called to revel, proclaim, display and participate in the mercies of God. I'm called to bring heaven to earth and to show a broken world what rule under Jesus looks like. Our role is to empower disciples to be both a faithful presence and a witness of the power of the gospel and of the beauty of our King. This means that we have to get rid of the cultural version of Christendom that has been hijacked and manipulated for political influence. We also need to get rid of the false gospel of simple life enhancement, that Jesus is there in order to make my life better. Cultural Christianity is dying and that's not necessarily bad news. That means that true followers of Jesus will no longer be camouflaged by conservative politics, by wokeness, by niceness, but by their fervent passion and devotion to Jesus and his bride. We are not the moral majority anymore. We are the prophetic minority. And so says Russell Moore. And this is what Elsie says. This minority status does not mean a siege mentality. In other words, this doesn't mean that we've got to cower and just um, build up the walls around us. But the prophetic word, after all, uproots and rebuilds 
We are not ambassadors of traditional values. We are stewards of the mystery of the gospel. That is something that we need to tear down the idea of Christendom and build this new altar of the purity of the gospel. The other thing that needs to be torn down is the idea of community versus communitas. And this is not just the idea of any community. Uh, We're seeing a resurgence of people's desire for connection. These are not necessarily purpose-driven groups, but interest-driven groups. Have a look at this video. Now, as funny as that is, what do you notice? Um, These are niche groups, right? Who would have thought of a group that just gets together in order to skip stones on a lake? But the reality is these are low sacrifice, low challenge groups that are there for a sense of togetherness and connection. Um, There's not even a vague purpose to these groups other than the idea of let's get together and let's experience something together. In the context of the church, we are tempted to be purveyors or tasters, consumers of spiritual commodities rather than invested sacrificial members of a covenant community. I... uh, I, I, I like the Anaheim packing district. I like the idea of being able to go there and being able to choose a drink from this stall and to be able to choose a poutine from that stall and then to be able to choose my dessert from another. Um, and, and this is what church is becoming now, especially with these online ideas. I'm going to choose worship from this specific online group. I'm going to be part of this life group or community. I'm going to listen to this person because they're better. A church is not the Anaheim packing house. It's not even a buffet where you just go to one place. Even if you are just part of one church and you'll say, well, I'll take their teaching on this, but I'm not going to take their teaching on that. And I don't like beans, but I'm going to have extra shrimp. A church is what we all know traditionally as churches are. It's a potluck. Everyone brings something. Everyone is necessary. And we put all these things together to enjoy that which everyone brings to the party. The idea of church as a spiritual content dispenser has become heightened during the time of quarantine, where you can receive any kind of spiritual product now more than ever. Now all of these products are even so much better. We can narrow our tastes and filter out what we don't want to hear. This is not the church. The church is not a dispenser of spiritual products or content or experience, but it is the intentionally missional, relational crucible where our love for our brother and sister is tested. Let me say that again. It is our missional, relational crucible where our love for one another is tested. God has given us through his word clarity on what relationship with him looks like, on what worship looks like and service looks like, and none of it is ever separated from the community of God. It is not theoretical, it is local and practical. So what is communitas? Alan Hirsch says that it is a community with a purpose that is outside or bigger than itself and therefore contributes to the larger society. It is a purpose that is pursued even though it's challenging and stretching. Think of Jesus saying, unless you take up my cross, you cannot follow me. In communitas, the individual is willing to surrender his or her will for the ultimate goal. And communitas is a stronger anchor than just playing the idea of community because we rely on each other for a goal. And when that person lets us down, it's not like they just haven't shown up to the party. It's like they haven't done their part to enable us reach the purpose for which we were created. Now, it's in pursuing communitas that the community will almost certainly be itself transformed. We will feel loved. We will feel healed. The problem is that we're afraid that in service, 
and sacrifice and mission, that this community will just become utilitarian, that I'll just become another cog in the kingdom machine. But it is exactly the opposite. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together says this, those who love the dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. What is he saying is that, is that ultimately when our desire is just for community itself, rather than a deep love and understanding that the way in which Christ has designed for us to be is in community, and the idea of church is what we love as we love one another, then we begin to destroy it because we begin to fashion it according to our needs and desires. Deep, strong, lasting relationships are formed in the fire of mission, opposition, and sacrifice. The church is the means by which we are spiritually formed and the means by which we engage in the commission of God. And just because we can't do it perfectly does not mean we should abandon it. Bonhoeffer continues to say this, if we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we have been placed, in other words, if we don't give thanks for the church in which God has placed us, even when there is no great experience, no discoverable riches, but much weakness, small faith, and difficulty. So even when things are tough, if on the contrary, we only keep complaining to God that everything is so paltry and petty, so far from what we expected, then we hinder God from letting our fellowship grow according to the measure and riches which are there for all of us in Christ Jesus. Now what I want to do, Mercy Commons, is I want to thank you. And when I was reading this, I was thinking of many of you and I want to thank you because you are not purveyors. You are not tasters. By and large, you are committed, valued, sacrificial members of this community and of this Christian fellowship um, that makes it worthwhile and enjoyable to be part of the church with you. The second thing is that the church is being sifted. I like to think of this, and maybe this is a little weird, as the automatic update, right? Every now and then you look at your device and you say, you must update your device. You don't really have a choice about it in a month or a year, or whatever, we're not gonna support this. There's an automatic update. Um, we know that, um, that Barna from last week's quote says, one third of the church, 33% of the church is no longer engaged in any part of the church. And part of what I believe is happening with this reboot is that God is sifting his church. Now, in the story of Gideon, there is a voluntary sifting. God tells Gideon to go to the people, and he says this in Judges 7 verse 3, Now announce to the troops, whoever is fearful and trembling may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 of the troops turned back, but 10,000 remained. Two-thirds of the people left because they were fearful and trembling. Now, th this is not new. Jesus in the Gospels says to not only the disciples, but the rest of the crowd, and this is the point here, do you also want to leave? If you want to leave, feel free to leave. What is happening here is there's a, there's a very distinct sense in which people are deciding whether they're part of the crowd or whether they're part of the core. And the reality means that mainly the difference between part of the crowd and the core is the level of sacrifice that we're willing to give. I believe that God never adjusts the level of sacrifice. And I believe that during this time, there'll be two kinds of, of, of sifting. One, a voluntary sifting, where people decide for themselves, I am going to be part of this or I'm not going to be part of this. 
But we know that in the story of Gideon, what happened is they, that group was still too large. And so God takes them to this little river or lake. Um, and he says to Gideon, tell them to drink water. And he divides the people between those that lapped up water into their hands and those that bent up and drank water. Now, what does that mean? Is there deep spiritual significance to the way people did that? No, it means that there will be a time where God himself will sift the church. And we won't know the reason and we won't know the format or be able to even be prepared because there's no judgment on whether you lapped it up with your hands or whether you bent over. But it's because God chose that secondary shifting based on what it is that he wanted to do. The most important thing was that God would gain the victory. The most important thing was that glory would come to him. Now, the thing about sifting, which is so encouraging, is that it's not necessarily permanent. We look at Luke 22, when Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. What I love about the story is that a mark of, G of Peter's return is his love for Jesus and his affection for Jesus being fulfilled by the way that he looks after and cares for his brothers or the church. And we know the story of, of Peter when Jesus says to him, you will be sifted, your faith will be tested, that you will deny me. And so yet when Jesus says, when you return to me, even after that sifting, look after your brothers, strengthen your brothers. We know the story that when Peter is restored after he has denied Jesus three times, Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? And then the secondary thing that he says to him is, look after my lambs, feed my sheep, love my lambs. The way in which our love for Jesus is expressed is through our love for his gathered community, for the church, for the lambs and sheep that Jesus is um, busy engaging and inviting us to be on mission so that more lambs and sheep can come into his sheepfold. This is the same protection, grace, and focus that he offers us. This is the same and must be true for us. This is what Jesus died for. This is what Jesus is building. And this is what he will return for. Lastly, in the story of Gideon, we, we know that God has called Gideon. He's broken down the altars. Now he's going to go and fight against the Midianites. There are too many people, so God sifts them. And now... There's a difference in methodology, a very, very weird way of approaching this kind of battle. Judges 7 verses 16 to 18 says, then he divided the 300 men that are left. Now, that's a, a very few men that are left out of the huge big amount that were there, right? Into three companies. And he gave the men a ram's horn in one hand and an empty pitcher with a torch inside it in the other. Now, an empty pitcher is like a, it's like a ceramic um, jug that you would put a, uh, a torch is, is like a lamp under there. Watch me, he said, and do what I do when I come to the outpost of the camp. When I and everyone with me blows the ram's horn, you are also to blow your ram's horn around the camp, and then you will say, for the Lord and for Gideon. And ultimately what happens is that God gains the victory over this huge Midianite army because one of the captains has a dream in the camp of Midianites, of the Midianites, that Gideon is going to come and destroy them. And so these three groups of men stand up on the edges of this camp. And I mean, imagine the scene and they're standing there and they're yelling and they're blowing their ram's horn. And then they suddenly shatter these, um, uh, these 
pictures and suddenly there's light everywhere. And so what happens is scripture tells us that the Midianites in their complete confusion end up killing themselves. And so a great victory is won by God. Now I want to say this, this was a specific strategy for a specific time and a specific circumstance. Israel did not suddenly march into every battle with a pitcher in one hand and a ram's horn in the other. This was in response to God's initiative, not some kind of cultural pressure or some kind of new woke way of doing things. This was in direct response to what God had told him. I don't even have time to go into how God led Gideon into this and Gideon was afraid and asked multiple times, God, are you sure? Are you sure this is what you want to do? But what is true is that we must be flexible about our methodology, but we can't assume that this present moment will change everything for all eternity about God's um, church, its form, its intent, and its purpose. God wanted to show that it's not the strength or the size of the army, but the reality of I am with you, of the Lord being with you, and obedience to Him is what won the, the battle. The form of church may alter, But the centrality of the church to God's purpose will never. Gatherings will never go away. Individual Christians discipling other Christians will not go away. Biblical leadership will not go away. The preaching and applying of the atoning work of Christ will not go away. The active pursuit of the Spirit and our engagement in the the Great Commission will never go away. The gathered church has morphed and changed multiple times throughout history but it is still a very visible light in a very dark world. She is strong. She is beautiful. She is tough and resilient. She is faithful. She is purposeful. She survived active persecution. She survived modernity, post-modernity. She is still the beautiful, desirable bride of Christ. She's still longing for her husband, Jesus, who's selfless, powerful, and humble love equip her to bring restoration to a world groaning. Jesus is building and protecting her. That will never change. The gates of hell will not prevail against her. That will never change. During this time of reboot, let's take an idle inventory and and let's look at our soul devices and see, is there something that needs to be torn down? Something of my father's that has been set up that I've become used to that is difficult to tear down, but that God is calling me to deal with. Let's prepare ourselves for the sifting uh, that uh, that the um, the landscape will look different, uh, that the people that are part of me now may not be part of me. And let's be open to a new methodology. But let's remember this in the words of Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the message. Through followers of Jesus like yourself, gathered in churches, this extraordinary plan of God is being made known and talked about even among the angels. All this is proceeding along lines planned all along by God and executed by Christ Jesus. When we trust in Him, we're free to say whatever needs to be said, bold to go wherever we need to go. So don't let my present trouble or let me change that. Don't let our present trouble get you down. Russell Moore finally says that the kingdom doesn't just change what we say, though it does change how we say it. We speak with a convictional kindness because we are not enraged losers. We are more than conquerors in Christ. The Christian church then should be confident, hopeful and future directed we should march triumphantly into the future.
Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.